Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray, Father, that as we just simply look at it and say, what does it say, and what does it mean, and what do we learn about Jesus in this? I pray that there would just be a, a softness to our souls, that your Holy Spirit would be the one working right now, not, not me or anyone else. So we just pray your Spirit would work through your word to draw us uh, to Jesus. So we just give you this time in your name. Amen. Trevor, where's Trevor at real quick? You just bump this a little bit so I can, thank you. Um, before we get started, we're in Leviticus 4, and before we get started, I want to commend you. I mean, I, I honestly mean this. I want to commend you because you came tonight knowing full well that we're in Leviticus, and you've already had a taste of many of you of like the nature of this book. I mean, it's good. I'm not saying it's not good. But it's sometimes a little bit more work to get through this. And you guys, I'm just proud of you. Nice work. Give yourself, pat the person next to you on the back and say, well done. Good. No, don't do that. <laughs> I'm going to resist the temptation of what I always do, which is a lot of review. And I'm not going to do that so much tonight. So I apologize to, to those of you who maybe are here for the first time and you don't really know the scope of the book of Leviticus. I'm going to say very little about that and just try to jump in as, as best that we can. I will say this, however, as this book was directed to the Levites to teach a nation, Israel, how to worship and live in a way that is acceptable to a holy God, the first 16 chapters basically uh, deal with this idea of sacrifice. And the last chunk of the book, 17 through 27, deal with separation or holiness, and we'll talk about that. But we find ourselves tonight kind of in the middle of the first chunk of the first chunk. So chapters 1 through 7 make up this section dealing with five offerings or sacrifices that the children of Israel could bring in their worship to God. How many? Five. And so we've looked at two of them, excuse me, we've looked at three of them. We have two more to go. Now, it's interesting because the first three of those offerings, which were the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace or the fellowship offering, were what was called voluntary, um, voluntary offerings or sweet-smelling aromas to the Lord. That's way more poetic. Um, and those were what, they, what I just said, voluntary. You didn't have to bring them. You could bring them if you want to bring them, and we went through all of that. But now we put the clutch in, we switch gears a little bit because these last two offerings are, are mandatory offerings. They were ones that you, you needed to bring. Because whereas the first three offerings were voluntary, they dealt more with this idea of voluntary consecration or dedication of yourself to God. Like, I, I'm bringing this because I want to and I'm just enjoying fellowship with you or I want to, you know, it, it was just more to do with that aspect. But these last two that we're going to look at, they deal more not so much with, with consecration, but with cleansing. Cleansing from sin. Here's how it breaks down, uh, if you're a note taker, which I encourage you to be, um, is we're going to look at two offerings. The first one is the sin offering. And that's going to start us in chapter 4 and go through chapter 5, about verse 13. And then the second offering is the guilt offering. And they're very similar, and we'll talk about their similarities and differences but that one will start at 5.14 and take us through chapter 6, verse 7. And that's where we're going to target to get through tonight. That's a lot. I know it's a lot. 
Um, but there's a lot of repetitive stuff, so we can kind of blitzkrieg through some of that. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll get into it. So let's begin after all of that. And um, we're going to start in chapter 4. What I'm going to do is read through verse 12. And that's going to give us a handle on this idea of the, uh, the sin offering. I'll talk about some of the important qualities of that. And then it'll kind of set the tone for the rest. So we'll spend a little bit more time on the first 12 verses. Well, let's start by reading it. It says in verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about the things not to be done, or does any one of them, if it is uh, the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer the sin, uh, for the sin, excuse me, he has committed, a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. Verse 4, he shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood from the bull and bring it to the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle um, part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull shall be poured out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat from the bull of the sin offering shall he remove. And the fat that covers the entrails, the fat that covers, um, excuse me, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and on their loins and the long lobe of the liver that shall remove with the kidneys, verse 10, just as they are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offering. So it's exact kind of procedure. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. Verse 11 but the skin of the bull and all its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap and burn it up on fire of wood. On the ash heap he shall burn it up. That's pretty clear. Let's just move on. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, even as I was reading that, I... I didn't necessarily pick those songs to coincide with this, but I did realize through the set, like, wow, this really matches what I'm teaching. Um, maybe it was on my mind subconsciously and I just did it. But, you know, when we were singing that last song, Nothing But the Blood, I can't help but think, what does a person who's never been to church think when they come to the doors and a bunch of people are singing about blood? I mean, we're so, like, inoculated we're so like used to that you know indoctrinated with that that line of thinking if you've been around the bible for very long that we're like oh yeah i get that but i mean it's good to kind of back up a little bit and say what does that mean i mean a newcomer comes in hey welcome there's nothing but the blood i'm out you know like what what's gonna happen next you know um but there's a good reason that we sing about the blood that we write songs about blood that we celebrate blood and it sounds gross and morbid um, but the reality is, it's like I said earlier, it, it's the life is in the blood and it is with blood that atonement is made for souls. And that's an important, 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 all-important doctrine. And like I said um, a couple of weeks ago, you know, these chapters that we're looking at, these offerings that we're looking at, they all find their ultimate fulfillment in the person 
the life, death, resurrection, ascension, glorification of Jesus. Amen? It's all pointing us to Jesus. He's the one that shed his blood. He's the one that sacrificed himself. And so we have to have that understanding going in. But um, I think I lost my train of thought. What I was going to say about that. It'll come back. It's like a boomerang. It'll come back. But this is what I want to start with. As we're looking at this, um, this, this first offering, this sin offering, what I want to do is just kind of define a couple of terms, and then we'll kind of get into some of the specifics. So first of all, what is the sin offering? Like if you looked it up, what, what are we talking about? Let me just nutshell it for you a little bit. The sin offering is this, if you want to write it down or just at least tattoo it in your brain. It's a, a sacrifice. Listen, the sin offering was a sacrifice to atone for or cover, that's what atone means, to cover for the unintentional sin of a person or a group of people. As we'll see later on, it applies to groups as well. So it was an offering or a, a substitutionary sacrifice. And all of these offerings are based on this idea of substitution. Somebody else or something else is dying in my place to make atonement or to cover or to make right for the sin that I have done. Pretty clear. Amen? We get that. So you mess up, you got to bring a sin offering. Now I want you to notice this because it's going to pop up over and over again uh, as we go through this, is this idea, notice what it says. I have the ESV, and in the ESV it says unintentional sin. Does, does another, you guys have something else, a different version? Anybody? No? Huh? Sin of ignorance. Yeah, so same idea. So this is interesting. It says, look, if you sin ignorantly or unintentionally, first of all, let's define sin. Um, sin is something that it's funny because, well, actually, it's not funny. It's funny that it's not funny, but people make it funny. Sin is something that's mocked nowadays. Like, if you said something, you know, people joke about, oh, I'm sorry, was that a sin? Like, mocking the whole idea that there's actually sin. But guys, there is. Sin is sin. The word sin in its very basic Hebrew meaning and what it just means altogether. It's chata or something like that in the Hebrew. And it literally just means this, to miss or to go wrong. I always picture like a dartboard over on the wall. There's a dart. Anybody like darts? Every, everybody likes darts. Don't lie. Um, anybody ever play darts? Okay, just checking. Seen it on TV? So let's just pretend you know what a dartboard is and there's a bullseye in the middle and we're playing darts and I'm, I've, got a, I've got a dart in my hand, and I'm, boom, and I'm trying to hit the bullseye. And I might come, I might be within a millimeter of, a, of the bullseye, but I miss it. Guess what? Sin. I missed it. I missed the mark. That's what sin is. It is missing a mark. It is missing the standard. And what is the standard? God's perfect, holy righteousness. And when you miss, that's called sin. Now, this is interesting, but he calls it an unintentional sin, a, a sin of ignorance. This is what that, and that's exactly what it means. I didn't mean to do it. I wasn't trying to miss. I was ignorant that I was missing. And this is what it communicates. Excuse or sincerity or ignorance does not excuse the breaking of God's law. Does that make sense? This is where people get a little edgy. There is no mercy in the law. If you break the law, you break the law. And you can say, well, I didn't, I didn't know it was a law. And the officer will say, you didn't know that going 95 miles an hour in a 25 was a good, I didn't know. You know, guess what? Ignorance does not 
Do you understand what I'm saying? Ignorance of the law does not excuse the fact that a law was broken. Nor sincerity. But I was really trying to do the speed limit, and I just got distracted, and I was looking at rubbernecking the surf, and I got, and I, I, I got on my gas pedal a little heavy. Guess what? Sincerity? I'm trying really hard not to speed anymore. Doesn't matter. You were speeding. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? A law was broken, and no amount of excuses and ignorance or sincerity actually excuses you from breaking the law. You broke a law, period. Anybody ever been to a, maybe you shouldn't ask for this. If you've ever been in a courtroom, I remember, I I got a ticket one time back in the day. I, I was driving my 1976 white El Camino. It's what got my wife to love me. Actually, she hated that car. She had a 1985 Volkswagen Rabbit diesel that was awesome. But anyways, I had this thing with Posi and like 350. It was nice. It was an El Camino, guys. And I remember one day I was late going somewhere. I won't mention where I was going, but I was going somewhere and I was speeding. I had no seatbelts in the car and I lived in Oregon for like six months and I had California plates still. I got pulled over. And I was real sincere. Oh, da, da, da. You know, and the point is, I broke like three laws at least. And little side note to the story, he let me go for speeding. He let me go for um, no California plates. But he rung me up for the seatbelt law, which worked out because I was in, uh, enrolled in this college course at the time, and I had to do a speech, and I, I went to this court thing to, to bypass the ticket, and I just took notes, and then I did a speech on why you should wear your seatbelt when you're driving. That's called redeeming the time. Anyways, I don't know why I brought that up. The point is, is like, this is what this communicates. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm trying to be a nice person. I'm trying to do what's right. I didn't know it was a law. That doesn't matter. What matters is a law was broken, and therefore you're guilty. And, you know, you read the book of Romans, and Paul does this masterful way of just going through all of humanity, no matter where you think you stand in social life or wherever, religious, not religious, blah, blah, blah. All have sinned and fallen short of the righteous standard of God. And the wages of sin is what? Death. And what this does is it communicates how hopeless we are and how much we need a savior whatever you do don't get up and leave at this point from the sermon because there's much more that you need to hear the good news about that but nonetheless these are called unintentional sins and that again communicates to us our need uh, for atonement our need for um, a savior Uh, another couple things that you might want to take note of here and i love this um, as far as the procedure, I'll just glance over that only because we've done it on the other ones. But it was the same kind of procedure, very similar. They would bring the animal. They would lay their hand on the animal, symbolically transferring their sin to that animal. The animal would be killed in their presence. The blood would be taken, sprinkled over this, sprinkled over that, sprinkled over that. And then that offering that was brought in faith, in obedience, um, would atone for that individual's um, sin. Now, I do want you to note, too, a couple other things. This first section, did you know who, notice who this is addressed to first. Did you guys note this? It's in verse 3. If the anointed, what, priest sins. I love the fact, it's going to go through some other people. I love the fact that God starts with the priest. What is he saying right after the get-go? Just because you're a priest or a pastor or a minister, guess what? You mess up. You sin. 
it's, it's always wrong to put somebody that's in some kind of spiritual leadership place to put them up on a pedestal. God says right from the get-go, you're probably the worst, so I'm going to start with you. Like, if you sin, this is what you need to do. I love the fact that he starts with those guys because he just kind of um, sets the tone, I guess, for that. I appreciate that. Now, quickly on that, this is actually important. This is where Jesus Christ, as a type of our great high priest, takes a turn. Because, listen, to, I'm going to read it to you for time's sake, but this is from Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. Listen to this. Hebrews 7, 26 says this. For it, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for the sins of the people since he did this once uh, for all when he offered up himself. And then he goes on, actually before that in chapter 4 says that Christ, though tempted in every single way that we are, did not sin. Amen? You guys tracking with me? These priests, they had, to, they had to bring sacrifices for their sins. Jesus, our great high priest, never sinned. And that's more than just a like, oh, that's a little theological note. I'll take note of that. No, there's an application to it. He says in Hebrews 4, therefore, draw near. He says, we don't have this high priest that can't relate to us or feel the infirmities of what we're going through. And he says, we can just go to him and approach his throne of grace boldly. Amen? I love that. It's like he did it perfectly, but he's not saying, I did it perfectly. What's the matter with you? Why can't you do it? He's saying, I did it perfectly. I know how you feel. I know exactly what you're going to. And instead of being like pulled away from me because I'm perfect and you're not, he says, no, come to me and let me help you in those times of temptation. Amen? There's a whole doctrine attached to that, but that's just a beautiful thing. So let's move on. Um, we're going to keep going. I want to go a little bit faster here. Um, a couple notes about this particular sin offering for the priests. He didn't get to enjoy the portion of the food that wasn't offered to God on the altar. Remember, for the, most of the other ones, part of it goes to God on the altar, and the other part would go to the priest and his family. But in this particular one, the priest didn't get to enjoy that. The remainder of that, listen, the remainder of that meat and the guts and the dung would be carried outside the camp and burned, verses 11 and 12. Now, don't lose me here because this is actually really important. They were to take that outside the camp and burn it. And the whole thing that was being communicated, and this is important, listen, is the shame and the grossness of the priest's sin and the shame that was, a, like, the dung and the guts and all the stuff, and that was taken outside the camp and, and is given for the priest, and everybody's understood the priest isn't allowed to eat the meat or anything else, and it's just kind of accentuated the shame of that offering. Now, why is that significant? Because Jesus was crucified outside the city walls of Jerusalem. Not within the city walls, outside the city walls. And in Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 13 Right around verse 13, listen to what it says. Well, I'll start in verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear 
the, the reproach that he endured. Listen, think this through. Jesus was crucified outside the camp, fulfilling the picture of this offering. It was a shame. It was dreadful. That's where Jesus was crucified. And then he says, therefore, let's go out to him. Now, let me explain a couple things. Did you know the crucifixion was not about death penalty? The Romans could kill you 10, ten ways from Sunday. I mean, they, they, had, they were professional killers. They could kill you anyway. If they wanted to kill you, they could kill you. They didn't crucify you to kill you. They crucified you to absolutely torture you and humiliate you and to send a message that if anyone does anything to cross Rome, this is what happens to you. And where Jesus was crucified outside the city gates was a main highway. And he wasn't crucified up on a hill, and he wasn't crucified up, you know, on this big tall cross. They crucified him at eye level, right on the road, so that everybody that walked by could just wag their heads and go, oh, what a shame, and spit on him and mock him. And, and that's exactly where Jesus was crucified. It always messes with people when they go to Israel and we go to Golgotha. And there is the, the hill of the skull. He wouldn't have been crucified on top of that. He would have been crucified right in front of that. And it always messes with people's minds because they're thinking, oh, this picturesque, like, you know, greeting card thing. But in reality, what's there? An Arab buds, a bus stop. And there's hustle and bustle and smoke and commerce and, and pickpockets and things. And, and it's all just happening right there. And, and people are at first like, oh, this kind of ruined my view of what. But I like to twist it and say, no, this is exactly right. Because this is where Jesus would have been crucified, right in the middle of the central hustle and bustle of town so everybody could see it. And he would be hanging there naked and bloody and, and shame. Now, and I know I'm taking a lot of time on this. The author of Hebrews says, so just like Jesus was crucified outside the camp, let us go out with him and suffer the reproach that he suffered. Again, think with me. Who's he writing to? The Hebrews. The Hebrews, the whole letter of Hebrews, and this might help you if you're confused about that book, was written to Christians who were Jewish, and they were being tempted to go back into Judaism and turn their back on Jesus because there was persecution, because they were kind of being drawn back into kind of like the, all of the, the uh, pomp and circumstance of the, of the religion, and they were getting ready to kind of turn back on that. And he's saying, no, no, a thousand times no. Understand, Jesus fulfilled all this stuff that we just talked about, you know, for 12 chapters. And he says, now, just like Christ suffered outside the camp, go out to him and suffer the reproach with him. Just like Jesus was humiliated out there. What's he saying? Fully identify with Jesus and go out and I, outside the camp and identify with him. For them, that would have meant that all their Jewish buddies would have looked down on them, thought they were idiots, you kicked them out of their family, persecuted them, thought they were ignorant. I just spit. Did you guys see that? Anyways, never sit front row. What are you thinking? Um, the point is, before I distracted myself, is that he was exhorting them, no, go out and suffer that. That's what we're called to do. Guys, and for us, that's what we're called to do, to go outside the camp. Can I encourage you and exhort you and exhort myself? Let's fully identify with Jesus Christ. Why am I saying this? Because we can tiptoe around our identification with Christ to save ourselves embarrassment. Because if you fully identify with Jesus and call yourself one of those, I, I've been called recently one of those born-againers, and it's kind of said with a little bit of disdain, like, you know, 
you know, ignorant hick up there, a little born again. Like, clearly not educated. And people are going to think that about you. They're going to think you're a Jesus freak. They're going to think you're a fool. And they're going to, right or wrong, lump you in with stuff that's connected to Jesus' name. Oh, you're one of those bigots and hate mongers. And you hate gays and lesbians. Oh, you're a Jesus follower. Oh, you're, you're racist. Oh, you're this. Oh, you're that. Oh, you're, you just get lumped in with everything. And, you, and guess what? Try to, try to put out every one of those fires. Try to change everybody's mind. They're, ign- they're the ones that are ignorant. Like, no, we're not hate mongers. Actually, we love homosexuals and we love heterosexuals. Jesus loves everybody. But sin is sin is sin is sin, right? Am I guys catching that? Heterosexual sin, homosexual sin, it's all sin that needs to be repented of. But the point is, is that you are going to be pigeonholed. You are going to be lumped into places you don't, don't want to go. You're going to be misunderstood. You're going to be the scourge of the world because Jesus said stuff like, they hated me. And if you're going to follow me, they're going to hate you too. And I find myself tiptoeing around my identification with Christ so that I'm not misunderstood by this educated person I'm talking to. I'm embarrassed by that. God help me to go outside the camp and just cling to the cross and say, I fully identify with Jesus, whether you understand it or not, whether you mock me or not, whether you like me or not. He wasn't ashamed of me, and I don't want to be ashamed of him. Amen? And I'm spending time on this because I felt like of all the stuff we're going to cover, this, this is it. This is something we need to hear tonight. It's getting harder, crew. It's getting, it's get, the, the chips are down. Not by us, but the lines that have been drawn in the sand through media and entertainment and everything else. And you can't be neutral. You don't have to be a jerk. But you, don't, you can't be neutral. We want to identify with Jesus and talk about Jesus and love people like Jesus and talk about the cross. And, and that will be loved and accepted. That, it's what everybody needs and longs for. They, a lot of people, just, they just don't know it but we're going to get kicked back. Are you willing to do that? Am I willing to do that? Something we have to be pretty, pretty clear about nowadays. So anyway, very, very encouraging slash convicting. Well, let's move on. Now, verses 13 uh, through 21, he changes gears. It's the same thing, um, it's, except for he's addressing a different group. He says, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the thing is hidden from their eyes of the assembly uh, and the, the, they do the one thing that uh, by the Lord's commandment they ought not to be done and they realize their guilt, uh, when the sin which they have committed becomes known to them, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd. It goes on, verse 15, the elders of the congregation shall lay hands on the head of the bull. Um, we'll skip down. Verse 20, thus shall they do with the bull. It's the same procedure as we read. Um, as he did with the bull of the sin offering, so shall he do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. And he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it that is burned with the first bull as a sin offering for the assembly. So this is like if a whole group or uh, the, the, the congregation of Israel itself got involved with something, they realize it's sin, the elders, that is the, represent, the representatives of the, the community, would go and make the sacrifice. It was similar. But I do want to point out one phrase. Verse um, 20, second half, it says, The priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. 
that's going to come up again and again, but I'm just gonna, this is as good a place as any to grab a hold of it and talk about it for a second. When they brought the blood for the sacrifice or the animal for the sacrifice, the priest would make atonement for them. I just want to say this because we have people from all different kinds of backgrounds that come to church here, praise God. The priest, the word priest, the idea of a priest is a go-between, a mediator, representing God to the people and people to God. And he was the one that was kind of holding the hand of the people and holding the hand of God and bringing them together. And that was the job of the priest. He's kind of the in-between and he's doing the work and he's applying the blood and, okay, you're, for, okay, and you're forgiven and we did it right and you're forgiven. Um, but guys, we need to understand that Jesus Christ is our high priest. Amen? And without, we, we have all kinds of verses we could go to, but we're running out of time. He's not only our high priest, he also became our sacrifice. He also became the lamb. It's amazing. But because he offered himself as the Lamb of God once and for all. There's no need for another sacrifice ever. And there's no need for any priesthood. He is a greater priest than any of the priests that came from Aaron's line. Hebrews talks about him being a priest from the order of Melchizedek, and that's a whole other thing. But the idea is our great high priest is Jesus. We don't need a, a Jewish high priest from the, from the tribe of Aaron. Does that make sense? And you may have come from a background maybe a Catholic background, where there's priests and there's... The, listen, I want to just be real clear here, lovingly but clear. There's no need for a priest. And I think that the Roman Catholic Church, our friends, I, I love them, but the system itself is extremely flawed and in error and is working against the very thing that Jesus came to do in many cases. I say that with love, but we have to tell the truth. You don't need to go to another man to get your sins forgiven. You don't need to confess to another person and do Hail Marys or whatever. That's religion. That is what Jesus came to destroy. Amen? We can go straight to the Father through our high priest, Jesus Christ. So don't let anyone ever kind of rope you into that or get caught up in that. You don't need another priest. Jesus is our high priest. Amen? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. I love that we live in that dispensation. Okay, let's move on. Verse 22. Now, he's, it's the same sacrifices with little tweaks. Now, he's talking about a different group. When a leader sins. Leaders sin? Weird. Doing unintentionally one of the things that the commandments of God said ought not to be done, and he realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring his offering as a goat. So now it's a goat, male, without blemish, and it goes on to the same procedure. And it says in verse, uh, at the end of verse 26, so the priest shall make atonement for him. So a leader sins. Um, I do like this phrase. Again, it keeps coming up, so I'll mention it. He's doing it unintentionally, but notice what it says. When he realizes his guilt or it's made known to him, we don't like the word guilt, do we? We do everything in our power to excuse guilt. Did you know guilt can be your best friend? Now, I have to qualify that. I'm not saying as Christians we should live under guilt, but what I'm saying is when you're not in fellowship with God or maybe you don't know God and you sin and you feel guilty about it, that's a good thing. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? If you cut your foot like the leper's 
would do, and they, you know, with leprosy, they would lose all their, their nerve endings, and they wouldn't feel themselves hurting themselves. They're going to bleed out. It's going to get infected. So the pain is what? It's an indicator that, hey, there's something wrong. And guys, when there's guilt, it's an indicator. Something's wrong. And you can go all out of your way like, oh, I didn't do anything wrong. You can justify it 10 ways from Thursday. But listen, when you're guilty, you're guilty. When you've crossed the line, you've crossed the line. And that sense of conviction and guilt is intended to drive us to our Savior and say, Lord, I'm guilty. I've sinned. And when you realize that and you confess it, there is forgiveness. That's why they would bring the sacrifice and then they could enjoy the forgiveness. Amen? Now, once there's forgiveness for something that you've done, it is absolutely wrong to live in the guilt of something that's been forgiven. Amen? I'm not saying that we should live in that. That's condemnation. That's of the devil. We're free. But that initial feeling of guilt, the Bible says the Holy Spirit's job is to convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He convicts of sin. It's a red-letter day when a person realizes they're guilty. But it's only if they take it to the next level, which is to be forgiven of their sins. Amen? And by the way, I like that. When he realizes it or it's made known to him. In other words, someone's like, dude, you sinned. And there is time for that. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will convict you, and sometimes the Holy Spirit will come in the form of your wife or your friend. Praise God for those friends that will say, you're blowing it. Can I get an amen on that? Anybody had a friend? That's a real friend that comes and says, you're sinning. And it's made known to you. And they would bring their offering. How uh, much more I wanted to say about that. I can see that we may not finish all that I wanted to do. Verse 22, how rad would it be, by the way? And I, yes, I did say rad. Um, when it says here, if a leader sins and he acknowledges it, how great would that be? <laughs> I'm just saying, how wonderful would it be, actually, just to have in leadership, and it is wonderful, because I'm thinking top leadership, but just think about any level of leadership. Can I give you a little tidbit here? Here's good leadership. If you're a leader in any way, leader at your job site, leader in your family, mom, dad, leader at school, leader on your team, show humility. You're not going to get it right all the time. You're going to sin. You're going to fail. And the best thing you can do when you do that is own it, is to be humble. That shows weakness. No, that shows strength. Weakness is trying to cover up all your failures all the time. But how much more respect do you and I have for a man or a woman in a place of leadership, a teacher, a, a, a coach, a, a, you know, a boss, whatever, and they say, you know what? I lost my cool with you, and that was wrong, and I'm sorry. You know how many times I've had to go to my kids and say, I'm sorry. You were wrong in what you did, but Daddy was wrong for yelling at you. I should not have raised my voice. That was a sin, and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? You know what I'm teaching my kids? I'm a sinner, just like they are, and I need Jesus just like they do. Amen? So there's humility. I love that. Well, verse 27 says, if anyone uh, of the common people, so this is just, okay, we've gone from the priest uh, to the assembly uh, to a leader to a common person. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing one of the things that by the Lord's commandment ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed and it's made known to him, he'll bring an offering of a goat of a female without blemish. So there's some um, little differences, but the same procedure. It goes on to the end of verse 31. The priest shall make atonement for them and they're forgiven. I would add to this, by the way, that after the congregation, when it deals with the leader and the common people, that's when 
part of the offering went to the priest and part of it came back to the person who was worshiping. Verse 32. So this is kind of summing some things up. And we're not going to do that whole section that I told you about, so breathe. Verse 32. If he brings a lamb as his sin offering, look at this. He shall bring a female without blemish and lay his head, hand on the head, the sin offering and kill it. Then the priest shall take some of the blood. And it goes on. Actually, I want to get down to uh, verse 1 of chapter 5. If anyone sins, now, now let's just pause. What we've done is we've gone through, okay, here's the regulations for a sin offering for this person, this group, this person, this group. Here's what it means. Here's what they do, blah, blah, not blah, 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 but that's what it is. And then you might think, sin unintentionally. Well, I mean, does that ever happen? Like, why would I ever need to do that? Good thing you ask. He's going to give some examples of what you might need to do, why you might need to bring a sin offering. So look at verse 1 of chapter 5. If anyone sins when he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet he does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Verse 2. Or if anyone touches an unclean thing. Now we're going to go, trust me, we're going to we're going to delve into that subject later. We'll leave it for later. But anybody touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an animal or a wild animal, unclean livestock, or the unclean swarming things, and it's hidden from him, or he's become unclean, and he realizes his guilt, verse 3, or he touches human uncleanness. What's that? Oh, don't worry. We'll get into it. Or whatever sort of the uncleanness, uncleanness may be with which one of the un, uh, became unclean, and it's hidden from him when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt. Or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, um, he make, he, and he swears and it's hidden from him. And when he comes to know it, he realizes the guilt of these. When he realizes the guilt and he confesses his sin that's been committed and he brings to the Lord his compensation for the sin that he has committed, the female from the flock or the lamb or the goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him and for his sin. Check this out. You might go, what was that all about? God just gave three examples. He says, look, this might be why you might need to bring a sin offering. Number one, what does he say? You're a witness to something, and they're calling, like, hey, we need witnesses, and you're like, well, I don't want to get involved. That's a sin of omission. The idea is not doing what you know you're supposed to do. Now, anybody ever done that? Maybe not that exactly, but knowing you were supposed to do something, and didn't do it. That's a sin of omission. The second one was a sin of touching something unclean. Now, there's a different context to this. They're talking about ceremonial cleanliness. We're going to talk about all that. But the idea was you touched something you weren't supposed to touch. You did something you weren't supposed to do. You went somewhere you weren't supposed to go. You walked somewhere. Does, it, does that make sense? So you, a sin of omission, didn't do what you should have done. A sin of uncleanness touched something you should not have been touching, looked at something you should not have been looking, listened to something you should not, that now you've tainted, you're unclean in a sense. Or thirdly, he says, you made a rash vow. Now, the vows are very important in the Old Testament. Like, if you say a vow, it's better to not give a vow than to give a vow and not do it, right? So Jesus even said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. But the idea was you spoke too quickly. When I just boil these down, I'm like, oh, dang. I've done all these. Not done what I should have done. Done something unclean. And talked too quickly. Anybody ever sin with your mouth? One of my favorite Proverbs is where, uh, 
where there's no lack of, how's that go? It's one of my favorites, changed my life. How's it go? Um, In the multitude of words, there lacketh not sin. The more you talk, the greater chance you're going to sin with your mouth. (laughs) So all that to say is I read that list and I'm like, oh, this doesn't apply to me. This is for them. Oh, wait a minute. And again, don't miss verse 6 where he says, but then you realize it and you confess it and you bring your offering and you're forgiven. You might say, I can't make it through a day without thinking something unclean or, or saying something I shouldn't. Here's what you, do I have to bring a sacrifice? No. When you realize, when the Holy Spirit says, you know, you shouldn't have talked like that to her. You shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have gone there. You shouldn't have looked at that or whatever. And the Holy Spirit brings that, and you, it's made known to you. What do you do? You confess. You say, Lord, I did that. I'm not going to pretend I didn't. I did that. And then what do you do? You plead the blood of Jesus. Amen? 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sin, he's faithful just to forgive you and purify you. And we talked about that last week. We're going to finish with the last chunk here. Um, verse 7 through 14, or excuse me, 13. It's important. It says, If he cannot afford a lamb, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin uh, that he's committed two turtle doves, two pigeons, one for the sin offering, the other for the burnt offering. He shall bring them to the priest. He shall offer them for the sin offering. He shall bring its head from its neck. He shall not sever it completely. Sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the altar. The rest of the blood drained out on the base of the altar for the offering. Verse 10. He shall offer the second for a burnt offering. It goes on. Look at verse 11. If he can't afford the turtle doves or two pigeons, he shall bring an offering for the sin offering as, he, as he's committed, a tenth of an epath of fine flour for his offering. He shall put no oil on it, uh, no frankincense on it. It's a sin offering. He shall bring it to the priest. The priest shall take a handful of it as a memorial portion, burn it, burn it on the altar uh, for the Lord's food offering. It is his sin offering. Thus the priest shall make an atonement for him and the sin which he has committed. If any of these things he uh, has done, he shall be forgiven, and the remainder shall be for the priest, for his grain offering. You know, you might read that and go, what is the deal? Why is God making all these rules and making it so difficult? Listen, this is beautiful. What did he just communicate? God just communicated, first of all, hey, if it's a priest, if it's the group, if it's a common person, if it's a leader, what's he saying? A, yes, all have sinned, but what's he saying? But all have the opportunity to be forgiven. And then what does he say? If you can't afford a, a lamb or a bull, you can bring turtle doves. If you can't afford turtle doves, bring some flour, right? And so it's not like rules on rules on rules. What's he saying? I'm going to make it as, if I can say it like this, as easy as possible or as accessible is probably a better word, as possible so that anyone and everyone can come and be saved. Amen? He made a way. First he says, everybody needs to. And then he says, and everybody can. Because I'm going to make it where everybody is, no one's excluded because of any other thing. And it just, call me simple, but I just love this. Listen, it doesn't matter how educated you are. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how you grew up on the island, off the island, mainland, not mainland. It doesn't matter. None of that stuff matters. We all need to be forgiven of our sin. Every one of us poor, rich, and in between. We've all sinned and fallen short. And we've all got the opportunity because God made it possible for all of us 
to be forgiven, not through these sacrifices, but through the sacrifice of Jesus. Amen? It is level ground at the cross. And I don't care if you grew up in the, some religious church setting. I don't care if you grew up in the street. I don't care if you grew up rich or poor and in between, like we said. We all come the same way. We have to bow our knee, confess our sin, and receive the gracious offering, the sacrifice that God made of his son so that we can be forgiven. Amen? And once we've done that, praise God, we don't have to bring any more sacrifices. We can just plead the blood of the ultimate sacrifice and walk with cleanliness. Aren't you guys glad you don't have to bring a lamb in here every time you screw up? And I'm not saying like making it cheap, cheap grace. No, 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 it costs God everything. I don't want to sin against God because it costs him everything. But if I do sin against God, I can just come and say, Father, I did it again. I'm sorry. I can't undo what I've done. I plead the blood of Jesus. Please forgive me. And I can be forgiven and clean and keep on moving. Amen? We're not going to do the rest of the chunk that I wanted to do because I talk too much. Let's stand and we'll pray together and we'll leave. We're starting to get the picture, Lord, as we go through Leviticus that it's all about Jesus. Every bit of this is about Jesus. It's about our need for Jesus. It's about Jesus' sacrifice. It all points us back to you. And Lord, tonight, I pray that in some way, our depth of understanding of what you've done for us would just go a little deeper, more appreciated. We'd, we'd respond with more worship Lord, we love you. I pray for anybody here tonight that maybe came in because maybe they touched something unclean this week. Maybe they're kind of feeling that guilt or condemnation. I pray that they would just receive the forgiveness that you've given them already, that they wouldn't keep bringing it up. They'd realize it's done and be free. Father, help us go outside the camp and fully identify with you with boldness, humility, love, but boldness. And let people think what they will or pigeonhole us, but Lord, help us to be bold representatives and ambassadors of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.